Hey, everyone. Welcome to Bible and Breakfast. I'm really excited to be joined by our guest today, Justin Sua. Uh, Justin is the mental performance coach for the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, he's been a, a great mentor in my life just from uh, knowing him on through social media and following him and, and just hearing uh, his input on the mental skills aspect of coaching, life, and, and leadership has been great. So, Justin, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. So happy to be here, Coach. Appreciate it. So I just kind of want to start out, obviously, uh, you know, my faith is very important to me. And I know a lot of the people who listen to this, uh, their faith is important to them. And just kind of wanted to hear a little bit how your faith uh, supports what you do on an everyday basis and what it means to you. Yeah, uh, it's I think we've had this, this discussion before offline where just the importance of of faith and family and in sport. I think it's easy when you get. When you're in sports, whether it be college or, in my case, professional sports at the at the highest level, it's easy to lose focus. It's easy to to get swallowed up in the emotions and the results and the outcomes and championships. But what my faith does for me, it helps put things in perspective. It helps me to realize and to and to center my life on the things that matter most. Uh, it helps me to really pause and to focus on people rather than outcomes and uh, just really helps me not compare myself to other people, but to really just tap into what I've been blessed with and to the things that I have in my life and to really just focus on the things that, that really matter. And so that's uh that's what really helps me. And it also provides some, some behaviors like reading, reading the scriptures and saying my prayers and going to church as much as I can. Those are huge habits that really help ground me and, and just really have become anchors in the storms of life. Yeah, I love that. And obviously the Bible talks so much about how God's not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a, a power of love and a, a sound mind. And I think, you know, in the Bible, there's so many things about our mind and about our heart and how important it is as we go through this journey of life. And obviously what you do on a daily basis with the Rays is work with players on their mental skills and on their mental performance, not only on the field, but off the field as well. So kind of just why is, why is mental performance so important and why do you feel like it's something that we need to pay attention to in our lives? Yeah, I think, uh, so first of all, if that's okay with you, for those who are listening, defining mental performance, a lot of times people don't even know what that is. And I think it can be mixed up and confused. I think when you hear about a mental performance coach, something I'm always asked is, oh, so you're a motivational speaker. Oh, so you're an inspirational guy. So you're a rah-rah guy. And it's like, okay, no, let's, uh, let's establish what exactly mental performance is. And the, re the place I like to start is defining what, what physical performance is. I think you would agree with me and any coach who's listening to this, a simple definition, not a perfect definition, but a simple definition of physical performance is, is the activation of motor skills to accomplish a task, whether it be making a layup, passing a ball, shooting a shot, whatever it may be. Now, mental performance is very similar. It's the, the execution of, of mental skills to achieve a task. Physical performance is the activation of motor skills of physical skills and mental performance, activation of mental skills. And you're like, okay, what are mental skills? Mental skills are, are simple things that we do every single day. It's your ability to reframe a situation. Mental skills is your ability to calm yourself down or getting a little bit too emotional. Mental skills is, is your ability to pause and to consider your decision that you're about to make. Mental skills is game planning. Mental skills is visualizing uh, 
best case and worst case scenario and and how you're going to respond. And so mental performance, that's what it is, is basically taking uh, taking into consideration your mind, what goes on between your ears. It's identifying your values. It's being able to learn from failures. It's being able to not to get emotional when you don't have all of the information in front of you and not jumping to conclusions. And so that's where the basis of my work is and uh, with, with these professional athletes and coaches. Yeah. And obviously, you know, as, as coaches, we obviously like to lead by example and what we do on a daily basis, our example is so important, but sometimes, you know, players may not see what goes into that preparation. The example we're trying to set, how do you, you know, more so than just an example, how do you encourage coaches and players alike to enhance these mental skills to become more tough mentally, uh, more so than just by leading by example? Yeah, and I think you brought up a good word that's thrown out, that's always talked about, particularly in sports, um, the word toughness. And I think what we need to do is, I'm big on defining words, because I think we can get swallowed up in the culture of sport and we use these words that everybody uses, everybody says without pausing and saying, okay, is that what we really want? Uh, an example here, a, a phrase that we always talk about is mental toughness, which is, there's nothing inherently wrong with it, but my only invitation is to consider what toughness is. When you think of the word tough, uh, we think uh, we think grit, we think hard, we think rigid, we think grind, we think embrace the suck, and all those terms that go, go, go. Now, when also, when you think about the word tough, you think, at what point is it, at what point can you be broken when you think about toughness? Now, there are moments where I was working with a soldier once and he goes, I'm tired of being tough. Because tough means that I don't ask for help. Tough means that, that um, I can be broken. Tough means that I'm rigid, I'm dogged, and this is the way I'm going to do it. Then he says, the word that I want to be, I want to be mentally flexible. When I think flexible, I think adjustable. I think I'm like water. I adapt. I overcome. Throw something in my path. I'm going to figure out a way. That is what toughness is. And so to answer your question, if you want to be a coach who exudes mental flexibility, uh, it, you, like you said, it, it comes down to how you respond. And What's interesting about young athletes and young children in particular, when you learn in your in your in your uh, behavioral development classes, a lot of times behaviors aren't created; they're copied. They're copied by the coach. Players copy coaches. Uh, employees copy bosses. Um, kids copy parents. If you want to do the best teaching. It all comes down to your response to things, how you respond to adversity, how you respond to success, how you respond to a player who's, who's not living up to the standards that you set as a coach, as a leader, as a parent. And so how you respond, that's what's doing all of the teaching. And another concept as well is, is to get caught. Get caught studying film. Get caught reading a book. Get caught listening to a podcast in front of your team. Get caught talking to your family, talking kindly to your spouse or your significant other, uh, telling them, hey, I love you. I love you so much. Okay, when I come home, we're going to go to the park. Get caught. Let your players hear you have those conversations. Allow your players to see you, to catch you reading that book. Allow your players to catch you reflecting and writing in your journal. All those behaviors, and as you get caught doing those things, 
it's going to activate those mirror neurons and they're going to want to do what you do, not just do what you say. Yeah. I love that idea of getting caught. You know, I've, I've always kind of had that in my mind, like, man, I want people to see me doing these things. I want not just, not just for show, but to encourage them to do the same. And I, I think that's a, a great phrase and a great way to put it is, is get caught doing those things the right way. Um, you talked a little bit about our response and, you know, not just reacting to a situation, but responding to it. And I know a lot of times in coaching and, and seeing players go through adversity, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's a, a shooting slump or it's, Hey, we just went on a run in basketball, but now the team punches right back and, and, and now we kind of hang our heads and we can't get going. There, there's an immaturity there. How do you encourage athletes to, you know, they know the response is what they need to do. They need to respond the right way, but they don't always know how to do it. What, what aspects do you say, Hey, when, when you get punched in the mouth and you have to, to get back up and fight, how do you do that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's so true. That, that is so true. And I think uh, sport is a very easy place to look when that happens, because that's why I love basketball. That's why I love football. That's why I love baseball is because it's a little microcosm of life, how you choose to respond because as an athlete, you face adversity every single possession, every single game is just constant. Step number one is it starts with awareness. You can't change what you're not aware of. And a kind of a corollary principle is neurons that fire together, wire together, or in other words, the more you respond to a stimulus, the more you respond to something, the more likely you are to respond that way again. So a guy who hangs his head after a turnover is more likely to hang his head after the next turnover. A guy who, who erupts after a bad loss is more likely to erupt after a, a bad loss. The, the woman who gets emotionally triggered when she gets cut off on the street is more likely to get emotionally triggered when she gets caught off the street again. So number one is to know how the brain works neurons that fire together wire together if you sometimes you just get into the default mode you just do it by default turnover angry lose angry get cut off angry by default you almost like you're not even deciding to do it you just naturally do it because you've done it so many times number two is awareness it takes a coach it takes somebody sometimes from the outside to shine a light on it because another phrase is when you're in the system, you can't provide perspective from outside the system. That's why a lot of these coaches, like as a mental performance coach, the coaches I work with, they don't want a mental performance coach right there in the trenches with them every single day. Because if you're with them every single day, then you see it just like they see it. They want, they want me to leave, to come back and say, okay, assess the situation. How is it from the outside giving us this outside perspective? Because we're all inside of here. So as a coach, number one is to shine a light on the behavior. And number two is obviously understanding neurons that fire together, wire together. Number three, look for patterns. Okay, do we always hang our head after a loss? No. Okay, in the moments we don't hang our heads, what's different? So that you can tease out and start to look and say, okay, these are the moments when we get emotionally charged after a loss. And these moments we didn't get emotionally charged after a loss. What was the difference? So now you're an investigator. Now you're almost a scientist trying to find out what are the differences. And then what you want to do is then you want to create a plan. You're more likely to respond to adversity if you have a plan to respond to adversity. And so then you literally practice it as a coach, you sit with your players or as a player, you say, okay, these are the situations where I keep losing it. 
what can I do? What margins of safety can I create behaviors? Can I start to do in order to respond more effectively? Now, another thing is to, and I'm just throwing all these things out there and just different ideas, create a color code, green, yellow, and red. When I'm in the green, this is what it feels like. I'm breathing well, I'm okay, I'm doing well. When I'm in the red, I'm throwing chairs, I'm angry, I'm seeing red, I'm frustrated. What does the yellow look like? The yellow is, uh-oh, we just missed three shots in a row. The yellow is, uh-oh, we just turned the ball over on two consecutive possessions. Uh-oh, a yellow is when my heart starts beating fast and I can feel in my body, my blood is starting to boil. It's not the red, but I'm in a yellow. Okay, when I'm in a yellow, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna pause, I'm gonna take a deep breath. Okay, I'm going to ask myself questions. Okay, what can I control right now? So these are just different ideas. And then you go out there and you practice it. You practice it during training. And then you have to keep score. You have to go back and reflect, how did I do? Because you can't make progress if you don't measure it. You're not going to make progress if you don't pause and look back and reflect on how you did when you came in that moment. So as you can see in the simple little question that you asked, it's so nuanced. There's so many cognitive processes involved. There's practice involved. There's questions involved. There's reflection involved. There's, uh, there's, there's, there's uh, having a plan for adversity. There's getting, getting outside feedback. And that's, that's what mental performance training really looks like. It's not just reading a book and saying, okay, good. I'm going to go out there and be tough. Or, hey, just focus on what you can control. No, there's so much nuance and so much complexity and practice that comes along with it. Yeah, as we ask ourselves those questions and kind of go through that process of of learning to respond the right way, do you recommend or do you have your your players journal things? Are, are they writing things down? Are these just meetings with mentors or coaches that they try and uh, have them hold accountable on a regular basis? What is the best way to measure those those uh, responses? Yeah, the best way is what was really what works best for the player. Uh, number one, and so everyone is completely different. I have players who love journaling. I have players who hate journaling. I have players who love paper and pen journaling. I love player. I have players who hate doing that and they journal on their phones. I have players who love to talk it through with somebody and I have players who hate talking it through with somebody. And so number one is identify what works best for you. Number two thing to identify is what can you be consistent at? You might be, you might love doing this long 20 minute journaling debrief brainstorming after a game just unrealistic you can't do that every single game that you maybe you can but for the most part if you're trying to create a habit that's just too cumbersome to be able to do what can maybe ask yourself one question instead of 20 questions maybe journal uh maybe journal on your phone if carrying around a pen and a notebook is just not you lose it all the time that's not going to be helpful if you're constantly losing your journal or if it gets messed up all the time and so it's finding number one what works best for the player and number two, what can you be consistent doing? And number three is what is what will what will give you the best benefits? What will give you the most the biggest bang for your buck? I think we have a lot of players and coaches who will read what the best coaches do, best you mean the winningest coaches do. What does LeBron do? What do the best NBA players do? What do the best business professionals do? And they try to adopt that behavior to themselves when the reality is. That's a terrible idea. Their context is different. Their, their experience is different. They're a completely different person. So what the quote unquote best in the world does for themselves, that might be 
terrible thing for you to do. So don't just absorb people's habits and behaviors just to do it. Really pay the price, do your homework to find what works best for you. Yeah, I I love that because I do think it's so easy for us to, you know, especially as coach, be able to show film of an NBA player doing something. Hey, we need to do things this way. This is how we need to work out. This is the skill we need to work on. And it's easy to kind of show someone who's been there, done that. And it's an easy way to give an example. But like you said, it's not always the best because there are different contexts, different circumstances that don't always apply to a college athlete. You know, that professional's not not going through schoolwork, not going through uh, final exams and all that. So um, what I guess I don't know if this may be kind of the same touching on the same thing, but for some of those athletes, if you're a little bit more mature, maybe you don't struggle with, uh, you know, the ups and downs of the game as much. Maybe, you know, you are an elite athlete. How do you how do you stay performing at an optimal level? If you're if you're performing at an optimal level, how do you stay there? You know, once you reach a certain amount of success, how do you keep leveling up? Yeah, I think that's a great question for the person themselves. I think if you're listening to this and if you're truly honest with yourself and you ask yourself, what can I do to keep leveling up? It's gonna, And you're just quiet. Thoughts are going to bubble up. You're going to start to think about things you need to start doing. It's going to happen. Then you're going to notice things are going to bubble up. You're going to start thinking about things you need to stop doing. And then you're going to realize that you're doing some great things. You're going to think about things you need to keep doing. And so I think, and you can just explicitly ask yourself those questions. If you're listening to this podcast and you're looking for a way to level up, ask yourself those three questions. What do I need to start doing? What do I need to stop doing? And what do I need to keep doing? And to always remember the principle, you're never too good to get better. You're, You're never too good to get better. There's something that you can optimize or something you can get better at. And then you'll end up realizing that there are some things that you're currently doing that got you to this level, but you need to change or adjust to take you to the next level. You could, you could adjust. And sometimes it might have nothing to do with sport on the court. It might have to do with a relationship that you need to take care of. That's creating extra friction or weight that's on your mind as you're, you're practicing. It might have to do with nutrition. It might have to do with sleep. It might have to do with time management and doing your homework, finding a better time to do your homework or your studies before or after practice. And so I'm a huge fan of self-reflection, huge fan of it, and asking yourself better questions. If you want better answers, start asking yourself better questions. Too many people are asking themselves questions like, why am I terrible? Why don't I play? Why am I so bad? And if you're asking questions like that, your brain is to go out, find evidence, and it's going to throw it in your face to give you evidence on why you're bad, why you're horrible, why you're terrible. Instead, ask yourself better questions. What can I learn from this? How can I get better? How can I be stronger? What can I learn from my teammate? What is he doing that I'm not doing? What is she doing that I'm not doing? Things like that. Yeah, no, that's so good. And I think, you know, it's sometimes easy for guys, not easy, but it's easier for guys to kind of focus on themselves and what can I do to be the best I can be. But then when you throw a team aspect into it, it throws a whole nother wrench into it because, you know, teams are teams are messy. There's different personalities, different characters, different things going on, uh, you know, stats, playing time, all this stuff starts becoming uh, a thing and it, it sometimes gets messy. But you've worked with some championship teams. You've been a part of, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. 
what is at the core of the best teams you've been a part of and what what makes them tick obviously we hear you know these catchphrases these surfacey words like culture and you know doing things the right way but what is really at the core of being a winning team so before i answer that question i want to i want to introduce or remind the audience of a couple of 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 one cognitive bias so we talk about biases all the time at the elite level and biases are simply uh they're they're thinking traps they're traps that we fall into unknowingly we don't even realize we fall into these thinking traps that hinder clear decision making and one of the most common traps biases that we fall into is something called the survivorship bias now the survivorship bias is simply over indexing the lessons that we can learn from the winners and not taking into account the lessons we can learn from the losers. What we have all the time is you'll see it all throughout sports. The best, the champions are the ones who have books written about them. The winners are the ones who have the articles written about them. But what we fail to consider when we look at these winning teams is we fail to realize that winning masks a lot of problems. A lot, and for yourself, as you probably seen coach, and anyone listening to this, you probably know that Winning will mask bad communication problems. Winning will mask bad culture. Winning will mask uh, a lot of different things. Losing accentuates it. Losing will just exacerbate, and I don't even know if I said that word right, it will make, it will enhance everything else. And so one thing I've experienced, I've seen firsthand where how winning really masks a lot of things and losing masks a lot of things. I've seen two organizations with the exact same problem. One wins, one loses. And the winning organization is seen as, oh, we do these things so great. And the losing team did the exact same thing the winning team did, but they had a lot more L's at the end of the day. I've even seen this in singular games. Two teams, they're fighting it out, fighting it out. At the end of the game, the winning coach was quoted as saying, saying all these inspirational, fancy words to the players in the locker room at halftime. The losing coach said the exact same things, but they lost. You don't hear anything that he or she said. Nobody cares because of their survivorship bias. So I will say that. But so to answer your question, what did the best teams do that I've seen is they're very deliberate. They're, there's a process to what they do. They do things by design and not by default. There's a process to how they find players. There's a philosophy and a process behind how they conduct practice. There's a process to how they give feedback. If you ask each coach, what's your process to for this drill? What's the purpose of this drill? They're gonna be able to tell you what their purpose and their process is. And that's one of the best things for, for that elite teams do. Another thing is they separate the difference between the decision and the outcome. We get so swallowed up in the outcome. They're not the same. They're not the same. If I were to ask your audience, what was the best decision you made in the past year? They're going to think about something that was good. And that's not, that's not, that's the incorrect answer. Sometimes you can make a great decision and it turns out bad. We, we have to separate outcome and decision are completely different. Another example I love to give, you can drive, you can have a red light and drive right through the red light, but pass through the intersection unscathed, unscathed, but no accident. 
That doesn't mean it was a good decision. It means you got lucky. Or you can have a green light and choose not to go, and choose not to go, and, and, and then all of a sudden a car, little do you know, a car ran a red light and would have T-boned you. That doesn't mean it was a good, it means you got lucky. It doesn't mean it was a good decision. It means you got lucky as you were sitting there scrolling the internet and you just didn't go when it was a green light. And so I think really good teams are, are great decision-making teams. They have great process. And again, there are some teams who lose out there who probably also have it as well. We just don't know about them as much because nobody talks about the losing teams as much because of survivorship bias. Yeah, I love that. And man, there's been so many, so many powerful nuggets in this, in this episode. And I think, you know, I've, I've taken a bunch of notes here and I've really benefited from a lot of this. Um, as we kind of get, you know, we, we wrap up 2021 here and we get into 2022. Um, what, what is your, your take on, on goal setting? And do you have kind of a, I know you posted some things about asking questions and some questions we can ask, but um, what, what do you kind of advise people or inspire people to do in the new year uh, who are looking to, to be better mentally performing? Yeah, uh, I would say set goals with caution. And uh, just, just, like, just like prescriptive medicine that you're taking, yeah, just do it with caution. You need to know your personality. You need to know what works for you. You need to know what doesn't work for you. And as a coach, if you're setting goals, you need to set goals with precaution as well. Uh, and the reason I say that is because you can have unintended consequences, unintended bad consequences by sending, setting certain goals. Uh, for some people setting an outcome goal, we're going to do this by the end of the year. We're going to achieve this, a destination that they really don't have full control over. That could be detrimental to a player. You can get them so focused on something they have no control over that it derails them from focusing on what they can control and focusing on the process. Uh, some people you give them process goals, but what really drives them are outcome goals. They care about winning more than they care about the process of winning. And so that person, yeah, you create that process, but that's what drives them. That's what gets them out of the bed in the morning. And so you don't want to stifle their motivation, their energy. And so if I were to give a very simple, generic framework for setting goals, I would, I would, I would use the GWAP model, G-W-O-P. Now, this is adapted from Gabriel Ottigen's work, uh, who is a researcher, I can't say, um, and it was originally called um, uh, WOOP, uh, W-O-O-P, and I can't remember, but this is GWAP. So the G stands for the goal. So it's identifying, okay, what do you want to accomplish? What is it that you want to accomplish? Um, the G, the, the, the W stands for why. Why do you want to accomplish that goal? That is so important to identify because when you know why you do what you do, you'll have more power to do it. The O stands for obstacles. What obstacles are you going to face? Uh, as the Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And so what a lot of people do is they set goals and they get enamored with their goals. They get enamored with the idea of achieving their goals and everything is great. Everything is wonderful. They're motivated. And then at the first sight of adversity, when they realize how long it's going to take and how hard it's going to be, they give up. And so you want to identify the obstacles before you even get started. How long is it going to take? How hard is it going to be? What are potential obstacles? Just come up with worst case scenario. Just even if there's a low percentage that it's going to happen, put it down, write it down and identify how hard it's going to be. And the last P uh, is a plan. What is your plan to 
overcome these obstacles? What are you going to do when these obstacles manifest themselves? And I think if you use that simple, generic, basic framework for setting your goals, you're going to set yourself up for success, for long-term success. Uh, and also, I think as well as put a number on your a percentage, a percentage on it. The odds of you achieving a difficult goal are very slim. They're a lot lower than you think, but that doesn't mean don't go after it. Every professional, even D1 college athlete, the odds were against them to play D1. The odds, it is very difficult to play D1 or even college. The further along you go, the harder it is to get there. And so people, are, I've always been, I've been accused sometimes say, oh, so you're saying don't, don't reach for the stars? I'm, absolutely not. I'm surrounded by people. I tell my children, if you want to be an actor, go be an actor. If you want to be a music producer, go be a music producer. You probably have a 1% chance of doing it, but do you love it? Yeah. So go do it. Absolutely go do it. And just know that it's not going to be easy. That's why you must love the process and love what you do. And so kind of all over the place, but the GWAP model might be a great place to start. Yeah, no, that's great. And thank you so much for for sharing that. So many great things. Um, I hope everyone listening was able to to gather some nuggets and things that will help them uh, as players, as coaches, as as business people, whatever it might be. But uh, if you have some time, go follow Justin on on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. I know he's he's one of my favorite follows and always is uh, inspiring me and motivating me and helping me become a, a better dad, a better husband, a better coach. And I just thank you for for taking time with us today and really appreciate you. Thanks so much, Andrew. Appreciate it, brother.